Hello there, and welcome to the podcast of the best-selling travelogue around the world in 80 cigars. It features fascinating people, amazing places, daft adventures, and great cigars from across the globe. You can buy the book from all good bookshops, from your favourite cigar merchant, or if you'd like your own personally signed copy, you can get one direct from me by emailing nick at nick-hammond.com. Enjoy the pod. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to Around the World in 80 Cigars with me, Nick Hammond. Yet another podcast for you, and one I think that you will find fascinating. Certainly those of you who have a little love of the water of life. I have a guest joining me today. I'm very privileged to say joining me from his home because we're still locked down like most people, but we're uh, hoping to get out and do some some more usual things in the coming days and weeks. But uh, he's joining me from up in Scotland, and it won't surprise you to hear that when I tell you we're talking about whiskey. He is one of the great whiskey people, um, renowned around the world for his expertise, and in particular for his unique and remarkable sense of smell. And so he has actually, I don't know if it's a, a thing he's proud of or something he th- wishes has never happened, but he's actually called the nose now uh, you could yeah, i suppose you could say that's rather offensive but i think in his t- his uh, case it's meant affectionately and in deference to his remarkable sense of smell he spent a lifetime in the industry literally um and still is out there on the front line blending new blends teaching people about the incredible history and culture of, of whiskey and scotland itself so it's with great uh, joy that I welcome this morning, Richard Patterson. Morning, Richard. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> Splendid form. How are you, sir? I'm having a great day. Yes, the sun is uh, shining up here in uh, sunny Troon, as we say, up in the Ayrshire coast. So things are looking up. We've got a busy day ahead, uh, but the weekend is not that far away. So we can sit down and I would say have a few drams, but I'll be honest with you, since this lockdown, I'm having more than a few drams just to uh, finish the day off because it seems to be even busier now uh, with other things going on in other directions. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if you wonder how you ever got by before, isn't it? I don't, I don't understand how it's happened, but it, you're right. Um, and, a, and one of the beauties of it and one of the downsides is this, this whole Zoom conversation thing in that it's great we can talk to each other great that we've you know all these online tastings and 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 teachings are going on but i don't know about you but i find the whole thing rather not you know quite tiring to do as well do you uh yes it can become very tiring uh i mean i did a podcast last night on instagram and uh the first thing is the communication have you got everything that you're going to is it going to be all right? Is it going to work out all right? And we had a bit of technical problems at the beginning. And then because it was Instagram, actually my phone started to, just towards the end, uh, say you've only got 20% left. And before I could press the button, uh, you know, it was interrupted. So same with Zoom. Sometimes you can't get through okay. And sometimes the computer is okay. So this sort of technology that's going on, I think is is better but the thing that I really miss more than anything 
is actually looking in deep into people's eyes and able to touch or to you know communicate closer in a more mm. way. So although the computer is great, that personal touch which we're all going through just now is very trying. But hopefully it will not be too long before we can resume. But technology has certainly come to the forefront. Yeah, yeah, you're right. No, it's uh, it's no substitute for sitting down and looking in people's eyes as you say and seeing your friends and hugging your friends but at least it's better than sitting in a room and looking at the four walls um yes tell our listeners richard a little bit about you you could probably say in a more concise fashion than i could because having read your book um which is a, a fantastic tome of your memoirs which are just steeped in 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 Scottish and whiskey history and there's a story on every page so give us a pricey would you for those that don't know you or perhaps don't know you that well of your history in the industry okay well um, my father and my grandfather were both whiskey uh, blenders and I won't go too deep but when I was eight years old with my twin brother my father decided to take me up to his bonded warehouses in Glasgow it was called the Stockwell Bond um, and uh, it's a day I won't forget because he took me up up the lane. Uh, he took a big bunch of keys out and he unlocked these huge doors. And with two hands, he slid them open. And I walked into his world for the very first time. And as soon as I walked in there, the smell of madarized wines and whiskey really engulfed my nostrils. And I thought, what is going on here? And I could see the silhouettes of the cask in the background but it was of no interest. So my brother and I started fooling around. But long and short of it, annoyed my father. He handed me a glass of whiskey and said, right, since you think it's so funny, tell me something about this whiskey. And of course, I didn't know what he was talking about. And uh, I said, I don't know what you mean. And for that, I got a cuff at the back of the head. And he said, look, look at the whiskey. Put your nose into the glass slowly. Is it as heavy as your grumpy grandfather? Is it as light as your mother? Is it as sweet as your chocolate bar? Or is it as dry as the dust here on the floor? And, you know, I listened to him and I looked at the whiskey and I could see, yes, it was heavy and it had that sweetness like my chocolate bar, but it had muscle and structure like my grumpy grandfather. So that day is something that will be with me for the rest of my life. But really that warehouse, that dark, damp warehouse, the silhouettes of the cask is something I would never forget. Because every time I go into a warehouse here in Scotland or in uh, Portugal, in the Quintas and the Bodegas in uh, Spain, that, that memory still comes back to me with that smells that are going around. So when um, in 1966, uh, my father told me eventually, he said, you, you've got to come down from uh, Apple Palace Hotel in Pitlochry and you've got an interview with A. Gillison Company who own uh, Glen Scotia Distillery, and I went, but what for? I said, because you're going to start off in the whiskey trade. And, of course, uh, I managed to get the job, but then people said, well, let's face it, Richard, you only got this job because of your father. And that's when I thought, well, this is not on. This is when I really started to say to myself, you better start learning. You better start reading books on wine, spirits, and what have you. So during that four-year period, I really muscled down and started to say that, well, but the old saying, you know, knowledge is power. And when the executive stops, you know, learning, he's finished. So that 
four-year period. It was very good. I learned a lot. It was a small company. And then I joined White Mackay in 1970. And 50 years uh, this September will mm. be the number of years I've been with White Mackay. So many different changes, but that's a very quick soiree uh, around the, the world there uh, from my beginnings. That's Yeah, lovely story. And a couple of things I'd pick up on there. You talk very poignantly about your father in the book and about, you know, he was quite a strict man. And, and I'd imagine, <clears throat> like you, he was a very fastidious man. He dressed beautifully from the pictures that I've seen, as do yeah. you. Um, you're renowned for always looking absolute million dollars in your pinstripe and your pocket square and whatever. Um, and I guess you, you would say you take uh, after him in that regard. Was he a strict, yeah. strict man? He, he was strict, but he, he was also very fair. But, you know, the sad thing, Nick, more than anything for me, like all the people that might be listening in, you know, when you talk about your life with your father and your mother, you kind of forget the things that they taught you. And when I was actually, you know, writing the book uh, with Gavin Smith, you know, um, that, that, you know, is a time when I thought, you know, I should have asked my father more and more questions, but sadly I didn't and it, it was too late, you know? And, and so that sort of recounting uh, what my father was like, but other people said, well, you know, when somebody read my book, they said um, at the beginning before it was published, they said, did you not get on with your mother? And I went, well, what do you, <laughs> it's the way you talk about your father, but you don't talk about your mother. And, you know, you kind of forget these things. And I said, no, mum was always there in the background, et cetera, et cetera. And she said, well, why didn't you mention her a wee bit often? So, you know, it's getting the balance right. But listening to what mum and dad actually told you through the years, sometimes you listen, sometimes it goes above your head, but you should try and, you know, speak to them perhaps more often. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Um, my dad's no longer with us, unfortunately. But, you know, uh, you think of only in retrospect about some of the things he told you. And, and you, at the time you thought, well, whatever, you know, you, he hasn't got a clue or he doesn't know how I'm living. Or, um, And again, as you say, in retrospect, you think of things you would now love to, to ask him. And, um, yeah. and I know you said you got your first big job, as it were, you know, shortly after he died, wasn't it? Well, actually, what actually... He, he wasn't long after that, but the most important one to me, Nick, that really sits on my memory was in 1994 when he did die. And he, he uh, that was a very particular year that I would never forget because we had the Spirit of Scotland trophy. That was when we had to produce a 21-year-old uh, whiskey, submit it to remember the first reference to Scotch whiskey at the International Wine Spirit Competition held in the Guild Hall. And I, I was absolutely overcome to hear that I had won it that particular night. But it was a great occasion for me, but it was also a very sad one because just it was just like two weeks beforehand, my father had passed away. So I really would have loved to have said, you know, to him afterwards to say, Dad, look, look, thanks to you, I've won this trophy. And I just want to say, you know, a big hug and thanks a million, but it was too late. So, you know, it, it was a, a time that I remember with great joy, but also with great sadness that I wasn't able to say thank you to him. Yeah, bittersweet moment. Yeah. And uh, that must be what I, rec I remember reading it now. Yeah, 94. Yeah. Um, and the other thing you mentioned 
at the outset there was the was the distillery you know warehouses and stores and things and you're right that sort of sepulchral slightly moldy cold damp but somehow incredibly compelling atmosphere yes. they have there's something there isn't there that that is absolutely i mean uh, you know, when we talk about cigars, we talk about the curing houses and the smells in there, that when you go in there, you never forget that smell. Well, that that smell of warehousing, when I take people to our warehouses, either Jura, Dalmore, Fedekir, and Tam and what have you, if we're taking guests in and I open the doors, I say, no, 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 hold on. Don't walk in. Just stop. Just stop at the doorway. And I want you to smell and they look around at me and say, what are you talking about, Richard? I want you to smell, is the warehouse really damp? Is it moldy? Is it dry? Is it, you know, all these uh, particular nuances because, and people say, well, what, what are you worried about? I said, because this tells you something about how the whiskey is going to be operating, it's going to be maturing, it's going to be changing during that time when we close the doors, everything is black, everything is still, but the maturation with the temperature varying from one ware to house to another will affect the nurturing, the maturing of these casks. So, so important. But people just think, oh, it's just a cask. It's just a warehouse. No, it's not. It's a living, breathing world that's going on in that very dark, damp place. Yeah, exactly. And you can almost sort of hear, hear them snoring while they sleep. Is it? Yes. As in... Um cognac richard i know when i've been to the to the cellars in in the cognac region they have a particular mold that only grows on the walls surrounding surrounding those buildings is that a similar thing yeah tortula compensensis that's it that's it coming naturally it, it, it but is that is that is that lovely dampness you want it in scotland when we're nosing our whiskies and people don't realize this as well when you're nosing whiskey if you really want to see when the whiskey is maturing properly, then do it the months of August and just beginning of September. Because by that time, the warehouses with, hopefully in Scotland, as we're seeing just now, the temperature has risen. There's a higher temperature going on in the warehouse and therefore the maturation is beginning to step up and it will show you what the whiskey is really like. Whereas in January, February, even December, but January, February in particular, the warehouses are damp and extremely cold. So when we, in fact, nose the whiskey, we put it into the glass, and then I have to add hot water to the glass to, with the whiskey to agitate it, to arouse it, to bring the, the nuances to the top of the, the glass so it will go into my nose. So there are temperatures going on all the time but the maturation is changing all the time. So if you want to use the warehouse, use it properly in these months that I'm talking about. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I've been up in various warehouses in the in the, and I mean, <laughs> the best of times it can be chilly in Scotland, but uh, in some of the colder months. And yeah, it's properly chilly in there and you've got a real nip in the nose. And uh, yeah, I understand that because you need to, you need to yeah, wake this spirit up, don't you? It can be so cold. I, I know, I remember years ago when I was down on Isla uh, when we owned uh, Brooklady Distillery and uh, I had to nose about oh, 200 casks or something and I went into the warehouse and uh, I thought I had sufficient uh, footwear to, to 
take away the cold. My hands were absolutely freezing. They were numb because the whiskey is so, so cold. And I remember going back to the hotel and I, I, I lay in a bath for about an hour because I was really, as they say, chilled to the bone. Yeah. I got what I wanted, but you have to pay that particular price, particularly these damp, cold warehouses. Yeah, I bet that's a lesson you learn once, and then next time you have a boot full of, of kit, don't you? Well, yes, but the other thing that, that we learned from that from the early days was if you're nosing whiskey in a warehouse, that will generally tell you about 80% of what you need to know about that whiskey. Then we would take the sample back to Glasgow and we would chambre it in the sample room for 12 hours, 48 hours, and let the natural aromas arise as the temperature in the room rises as well. So that you make sure that the absolute soul of that whiskey is being nosed right into its heart. Ah, that's interesting. And yeah, I, I came up to see you in your incredible, almost a laboratory up in Glasgow. Um, uh, tell us, tell the listeners a bit about that, because there's the the magic of your olfactory senses that goes on in there and, and the blends and stuff. But it literally is shelves of sample bottles and people in white coats. And then there's a lot of science as well, isn't there? There is. It's a combination of everything. But when you talk about a sample room, I want you to imagine just a bare room. But when you walk into my sample room, um, you'll see cupboards, you'll see glass cabinets full of bottles, bottles that I've collected over the last 50 years for White Mackay. And then you'll see the tables that will be covered in samples. You open the cupboard doors, hundreds of samples. Then you'll see a round table in the middle where we actually do the majority of nosing. So everything in there and every single bottle, I'm proud to say, will tell a story. We've got whiskies going back to the 19th century with White Mackay, with Dalmore, the Duras, the Fedekairns, etc. You know, from, from the time they were distilled uh, all the way through to give us that history. Because history is changing all the time. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this is, I think, my fifth sample room at White Mackay. So many objects have had to be depleted or put in, into storage and put into our archives. But it's a living, breathing world that has also the mechanical and the anal analytical side too. But that basic analysis, the majority of the analysis, is actually done up at Invergordon. Although we do you know, quite a bit down in, in Glasgow, the majority to get the real analysis, the GLC analysis and all these things that are necessary, that will be carried up in Bregordon. What we like to do is to do it in its natural way and then to think of the backup that you might need from analysis. It's a two-way uh, and getting the balance right. But at the end of the day, 96% is down to the actual nose itself. Mm. Yeah, good point. And and when I walked in there, I remember thinking what a wonderful warm place it was with all those gorgeous amber bottles glowing on the shelves and the, you know, it, like a great bar. But 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 um, you know, you were actually analysing the stuff. Well, you that's a good point to end on. You you talk about the nose. How did the nickname come about, Richard? Well, really, uh, just because. Uh, my nose is slightly longer, uh, <laughs> saying that uh, my great-great-grandfather was Serrano de Bergerac. But um, I think it's just because I quite often, when I'm doing the presentations, I'm saying to people, I want you to really look at it. Don't just 
bring it up to part of your nose or up to your lips. I want you to take the glass and put your nose right in it, but hold it there. Do not be in a hurry. Take your time. Hello. How are you? And then use one nostril and the other nostril, but do it very, very slowly and watch the nuances rise. Take your time. And that will actually, by looking at it and, and really smelling it, but smelling it more than anything will tell you what you need to know. So the nose, as far as I'm concerned, is what it's the be all and end all that's going to tell you something about that whiskey and it's going to put you in the right direction, hopefully for success when people drink it. Absolutely. And who was it that first coined that phrase and it became known as your moniker? Actually, you know, you're the first person that's actually asked me that. And I really. No way, really. Yeah, because he said, well, you know, people have always said, oh, there's the nose, there's the nose. But to doubt, to, to say somebody specifically, um, I, I'm, I'm not actually sure because it was used quite often by a, a lot of people that just, you know, coined it. And, uh, you know, there's the nose. There's, you know, when you go to a warehouse, uh, when you go to any new warehouse, people would quite often say that the, the guys working in the warehouse would just say, oh, there's a noser, there's a nose. Right. And, and that's that's why it, it would kind of vibrate and people would just coin it from 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 that, uh, you know, from that conversation. Oh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm sure that people would have asked you that. Is, there, is it true, is there any truth in the rumour that you insured your nose for millions? Uh, it, it was, yeah, a way back. It was insured for just short of two million at one point, and that's when many people started really looking at footballers, you name it, and uh, singers. You know, protecting their insurance on their voice if anything happened to particularly footballers. But quite frankly, the premium became absolutely as it was staggering um, what the premium was. So uh, yes, it was insured for I think about. I think about 10 years, actually, and uh, then it kind of fell by the wayside. Yeah, and that's also a great PR thing, isn't it? Because papers love those little snippets yeah, and sound yeah. bites and things. <laughs> um, yeah. oh, let me tell people a bit about you, and if they haven't seen you, your presentation, as I say, you're immaculately dressed, you look that lovely Scottish accent, and you give it the whole... You're a showman as well. You are a showman. I mean, there's plenty of wonderful blenders up there but they tend to be more of the sort of taciturn scots some of them who are not comfortable in front of a crowd and just want to be you know in there blending their whiskey and be in the distillery where well, you're you're not one of those people you are well, you do play I, to the crowd don't you i have to, i have to say um you know I'm, I'm very passionate of what i strongly believe in I, I keep thinking and pinching myself every day scotch whiskey has been part of my life through my father and my grandfather but I'm very privileged and honoured to be part of this wonderful industry. And what I try to do is to give something back to it. I get involved with many things from the, you know, the uh, Benevolent Society, the Institute of Wines and Spirits, the 49 Club, the, um, you know, other things that, uh, particularly the Keepers of the Quake, which is very much, you know, part of that. So I'm, I, I'm very proud, but I need to make sure that some of that, great things that are attached to Scotch whiskey are put out to the world and get a better awareness uh, of people perhaps that have not heard of Scotch whiskey. Yeah, believe it or not, there are quite a number, but those that are approaching into sampling single malts 
are really hopefully approaching it in the right way, not knocking it back. I mean, these cowboy films that we see way back with Americans mm. kicking the bar open, the cowboys and knocking it back. That's not what whiskey's all about. It's about sipping, savoring, and really relishing and revering what a great, wonderful spirit is, even from three years old to, you know, 63 years old. Yeah, absolutely. And and one of the things you do very well is, you know, I've watched you do a few presentations and things over the years and you bring the crowd in and you can tell it's one of those situations where it's like a, if a live band starts and people really dig it the atmosphere changes in about two minutes and it's the same with you they look at you who's this chap he looks a bit dapper what's he going to talk about next thing you know you have them in your palm of your hand and one of the things you do which has helped along the way is the old twirl you know you swirl a little bit of whiskey in the glass and fling it on the floor now that everybody is a shocked and gasps and b it makes them laugh and from that moment on you have them do you remember how that started and why you did yeah, it i can tell you exactly how that started because um the the lovely man a fellow blender his name is donald mckinley he was sort of my mentor uh you know way back he, he is from mckinley's mckinley's whiskey uh donald mckinley uh, lives up north um and uh I used to go in the early days doing my presentations and it was when the big reels of film were used. That tells you how far back it was. <laughs> and the Scotch Whiskey Association had produced a film called Time Was the Beginning. And Donald McKinley, uh, when it went into the sample room, used to nose the whiskey but shake the glass. And quite often when he shook it, a little few drops of, uh, you know, uh, whiskey fell on the floor. And... Uh, I actually copied him there, but then I noticed actually, actually the rim of the glass, you were managing to get any possible or eliminating any possible odors by shaking it and letting it drip. But I thought, well, actually to make sure I'm absolutely totally sure, I would swirl it around and if there were any odors, then I would throw it away. And that's what I do. People say, oh, you just do that for showmanship, but I actually do that in the sample room when throwing it away, it doesn't stain the carpet, but it makes sure that gives me that the next time I put the whiskey in the glass, it's as fresh in that glass, and I'm going to give it the right uh, investigation that's required. Mm, that's interesting. I can see the sense in that now you've said it. Yeah, because then yeah. you are coating the glass entirely in that whiskey, and there's no other odour at all, is there? That's right. I mean, okay, you know, in the olden days, uh, I used to throw ice, I used to use uh, big crackers and what have you. But it's, remember the people that come, it's like any audience, any people that come to anything, any show or what have, they have to be educated, but more importantly, they must be entertained. If they're not entertained, well, you're just wasting your time. And the competition, the competition out there for the whiskey industry is so strong. So you have to make your mark. And hopefully we make the mark in the right way. It won't always be the right way. But if anybody said to me, uh, well, what I saw from that was passion. That's what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd like to talk to you briefly, if I may, about the Shackleton whiskey, which fascinates me. Um, like many, many people, not least uh, here in the British Isles, but all over the world, that the stories of Shackleton and, and Scott have always fascinated me since a kid. And I read 
the worst journey in the world by absolutely cherry garrard very yeah. very regularly and you you obviously know that that as well um yeah. so that really i thought was fantastic when you did it and i remember watching it with um you know watching the the news cuttings and piece, bits and pieces of interviews with you and then finally the tv um, production on it with great great interest and at the time i was also very envious of you because there's a, a clip in that piece where you were on a private jet heading to New Zealand, sitting in your in your in your, in your finest and smoking a cigar. And I, that's one thing I've never managed to pull off is a cigar in a private jet yet. But there's always time. So tell us about that incredible opportunity that came your way. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, I will look back on many things that I've uh, been involved in the whiskey industry, but that is one that, that will stick out in my memory forever. It was in 2007, I received a, a phone call from the uh, New Zealand Antarctic Heritage Trust. Um, and they said, are you Richard Patterson uh, from the McKinley's Whiskey? I said, you're the blender for it? I said, that's correct. They said, well, we found your whiskey. I said, what do you mean you found a whiskey? We think we found a case of your whiskey, um, but it's actually buried under the ice under Ernest Shackleton's hut. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. Can I get it? I said, no, you're not listening to us. <laughs> we said it's actually under the hut, buried in the ice. We, we still have to get it. Oh, right, okay. So that was in 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010 was, we said, we think we found it. I said, I said, hello? Yes, remember we told you we had found the, well, we've managed <laughs> to dig and we found one case but when we found the one case and managed to dislodge it, we found another two behind it. Oh. We've actually managed to get the case. It's uh, covered in permafrost. And I said, oh, that's wonderful. Can I get it? And I said, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. You don't own it. It's owned by many different partnerships around the world and nothing can be removed. You need to get permission from the New Zealand government. So to cut a long story short, after many months of negotiation uh we took it to, to new zealand uh under you know keeping it frozen and for six weeks we defrosted that case and slowly but sh surely managed to extract the 11 bottles that were left in the straw the labels were intact and then they started uh looking at it uh, more seriously and about the label and everything else so we uh, then managed to negotiate and said, can we have the three bottles to do our own analysis? And they agreed to that. So I flew, uh, as you said, by private jet to uh, New Zealand. Um, I'll never forget that because as uh, we got on the, uh, the private jet, um, and <laughs> it was something that was a bit crazy. I said, well, what's what's the rigmarole here? I said, do you, um, what about seat belts and everything? <laughs> belts? Have a cigar, Richard. <laughs> yeah, now that's my kind it, of flying. <laughs> it was really, uh, we, we, obviously we had to do through the protocol, but it was really quite a relaxing time. It was a very long journey uh, to go to New Zealand, the whole day of flying, et cetera, et cetera. We were only there 13 hours oh. to turn around after we managed to extract the bottles uh, from New Zealand Art, Art Heritage Trust. And uh, we brought it back uh, to um, Scotland. I got in a car, and I have to tell you, every moment of the time that 
this actually was happening. Uh, it was being filmed, um, you know, to, to record absolutely everything. So under, you know, very sterile uh, conditions, etc. we started looking at the three bottles. We were told quite specifically that you had to uh, take great care of the three bottles. You could not uh, pull the cork out or anything. You had to extract it by the best means possible, and that was getting a syringe down the side of the, the, the cork, side of the glass, and extracting it from there. Mm. So under these conditions, we managed to... Uh, take that uh, extraction. We managed to put it in a glass. But before we actually could do that, we actually shone bright lights as bright as possible through the paper the, and through the actual label. It was sort of tissue paper, but there were small threads that had broken away that we could look into the glass. And as we looked into the glass, we could actually see that spirit that had been under the ice for 103 years that it was actually clear. And that gave me an indication that if it was clear, not cloudy, there were small, small particles, which I assumed were coming from the cork, that we had a good chance that it might be okay. So I extracted it. We took the strength, which, of course, was 47.3% uh, um, alcohol. And I thought, what, 47.3% alcohol? Mm, that's something I must remember to put in the back of my head. Put it into the glass. And as the films were, the cameras were ticking away, I nosed the whiskey for the first time. It was very soft, very elegant, very refined, but there were hints of muscle structure, uh, sort of peaty notes, smoky notes coming towards the end. But it had that lovely floral, almost a sort of a space side element about it. But it had that muscle and that backbone coming from the peat. And when I tasted it, it was perfect. So that was the first article first material that ever had been actually drunk not nothing has been retained for eating but for drinking it was in perfect condition so on 3:47 p.m. on the 18th of January a Tuesday 2011 that's when i sampled it and then we replicated it, it took about 6 weeks to replicate we discovered that that whiskey had come from glenmore distillery <coughs> excuse me, mm -hmm. Glen Distillery, uh, uh, an old distillery that uh, goes back to about 1890. Uh, Sally closed in 1983. But we managed to get, believe it or not, a sample of that Glenmore. Uh, we managed to pick up. It was only one cast. Spookily, it was uh, cast 1907, the same year mm -hmm. that Shackleton actually set off. But... Um, so we used that replications, we did the analysis, we took many months to uh, look at these things, but within about three months we had actually completed it and we had done everything and therefore we replicated and put it into the market. Uh, first edition uh, and we're now on the third edition, but the third edition actually reflects the personality of Ernest Shackleton, whereas the first two actually replicated of what whiskey was like way back in 1907 under uh, the auspices of Sir Ernest Shackleton. Great, the film was going to call, be called um, Shackleton's Whiskey, uh, but the Geographical Society said, no, we can't call it that. We're going to call it the Explorer's Whiskey. And I said, well, why are you not mentioning Shackleton? Because the reality, many people, millions of people around the world don't know who Ernest Shackleton is. Right. So, uh, you have to call it 
the Explorers whiskey. But what we did was we actually brought better awareness as something like, uh, I think in that period, it was reputed that we had hit somewhere in the region of 30 million people bringing you know, that whiskey to people's attention, but more importantly, raising the profile of a great man, Sir Ernest Shackleton. Yeah, and just an incredible story. The longer you sit and ponder about it, the more remarkable it becomes to think that... that... So was the whiskey actually frozen solid? No, that's why I mentioned to you the 47.3% alcohol. That's why I said I must remember that. Right. What we discovered was... Uh, although the whiskey was under the ice, generally around about minus 25, minus 30, it would have to have gone to minus, uh, I think, 40, 41 before it would have actually frozen. Ah, uh, right. So that was quite fortunate in preserving it, presumably. It actually preserved it, and that's that's why it lay still. But more importantly, it remained in a static position for all those years. Nothing moved. It just remained there. People thought, well, you know, when Ernest Shacken got back after his uh, getting to the South Pole, uh, 97 miles on the 9th of January, 1909, took him 70 days to get out and 50 days to get back. And he managed to preserve the other three comrades that were with him. They were all managed to stay alive. They managed to not achieve their goal, but they got within the distance that would later Scott would, of course, achieve, but not get back. Shackleton was a great leader. He looked after his men and any expedition. Yes, there were many failures, but he looked after his men. In tough situations, you could rely on a man like that. And that's why over in America, for team spirit, for activations such as that, Ernest Shackleton is quite often used on that way of real true leadership. So, yes, he didn't achieve it, but he managed to, you know, at least what he did do, he gave it a go. He, he gave it all. Um, and then, of course, when he got back, uh, he, he didn't have time to take the whiskey. He just wanted to get the on that ship because he nearly missed it. And uh, he got back and, of course, he was became Sir after, you know, returning to uh, Great Britain. Yeah, it's a good point. And he, you know, even when the, you know, the crew was deposited in various places, those that were left to survive on the, on the island there, on whatever penguins and seals they could, they could find, they never once for a second didn't believe that, they, that he wasn't coming back for them. And, uh, and that, uh, to me, was very, very moving. Yeah, that, that you know... I, you say it in, in that way, but people must, you know, that are listening in, that is so, so incredible. Both um, himself and his other counterparts said, remember, we don't want to be thinking. We, the boss will be looking after us. He will make sure that he gets and survives and he'll be looking at. And that's, they had to instill that into the men. You could not be thinking we're going to all die here. They always kept thinking, He'll come and save us. And true to his word, uh, I mean, getting off, you know, uh, Elephant Island and what have you, it, it's just quite remarkable. It, such a, a great story of dogged determination. And that's what it was. It was dogged determination that drove him. I mean, even when he died on the 5th of January, 1922, uh, Alec Macklin, the doctor, said, what is remarkable is that such an advanced condition he was able to carry out as he did. It shows physical, psychologically, 
a, a wonderful willpower and an unyielding determination. That's what the doctor actually said after he did his autopsy, you know, on, on this great man. Did he? And, um, yeah, I mean, if you if they wrote a, a screenplay today, you'd get to the stage where you think, oh, God, come on, guys, this is pushing it too far. It's just getting unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Um, just a beautiful story. For those that don't know it, I envy you because you, you must go and find out about it. A remarkable story and a remarkable whiskey. When you tasted it, Richard, was it quite emotional? It was because... You know, you could see the liquid. You always look at the liquid, the colour. It was very light colour. It wasn't too dark. There had little tinges, um, you know, of sort of uh, dark sort of oloroso sherry, just tin small tinges of that. But what was remarkable is that it was quite well balanced, but it told us one thing, that our forefathers at the Glenmore Distillery were distilling even back there in 1907, 1907, when the age of that whiskey was, you know, ready, that even then they knew exactly what they were doing. Why did they take 47.3%? Because they, they knew that, in fact, the temperature might affect that whiskey. So, you know, even when we looked at the bottles, it was actually, there was rinsing going out of the bottles. There was a slight detergent that were found we found the peat had actually come from Orkney. Um, the original, uh, you know, beer malt was used as well. The analysis that were going on today, they never had that before. So it was able to tell us so much. That's why, although we opened two bottles at first, uh, we went back to the New Zealand uh, Antarctic Heritage Trust and said, sorry, guys, you know, we've got some results, but we really need to open the third bottle. And they said, what? Can you not preserve it? I said, no, I'm sorry, but we really have to. So we, we opened the third bottle to make sure that the results from the two other bottles was in line. But we found even small things going on on the third bottle, that the consistency of the style, the character was still very much there. And did you have to pack the bottles up and send them back? The bottles, actually, once they were finished, you're absolutely correct. People say to me, where are the bottles? They are back underneath the ice. The Prime Minister of New Zealand actually had to take them back, and that's where they are to this day. Ah, that's nice. And you still have some of the some of the liquid in your laboratory somewhere? I've got a bottle, but it's actually I have sadly I have to say it's now completely empty. <laughs> well, that's good. That's what it was made for at the end of the day. <laughs> Memories still linger on. And even that, you know, it was, uh, I, I remember taking a photograph of it with a 50 pence piece beside it and said, this is all that's left. And <laughs> said, that really should have been returned, you know, Richard. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Let's talk cigars, Richard. Tell me how you got into cigars, what attracted you and your cigar career, as it were. I, I always love, you know, when we talk about luxury, we talk about, Cognacs, we talk about, you know, single malt whiskies and aged blended whiskies. And that sort of era, Victoria era in particular, where the men, they're going to smoke cigars in the next room and the women are going to be separate. All this sort of fuddy-duddy stuff that, you know, we just, you know, poo-poo today, of course. But that sort of thought, well, that's part of luxury. And I always uh, liked it. But then actually I came through another direction. I came through um, Christopher Columbus. Um, I'm a great lover of uh, 
history. Mm. And, um, when I think about Christopher Columbus, set off the 3rd of, of August, 1494, 1482, should I say, and uh, gets to, of course, the New World on Wednesday the 12th, or Friday the 12th of October, 1492. But in his second voyage, 25th of September, uh, 1494, etc., um, he goes to, you know, areas that, in fact, reaching, of course, uh, Cuba on the 28th of October. Um, so therefore, you know, that sort of stirred my imagination. And then, of course, you read the history, there were smoking fire. And then, well, what's so special about this? The filler, the wrapper, the binder. Well, wait a minute, that filler, the wrapper, the binder, is that not the same as making up a blended whiskey? All component parts, the leaves are different, and they're going to give you that different flavor, etc. And then all the lovely stories of Monte Cristo, 1935, uh, Upman, 1844. 1844. Well, wait a minute, that's when White Mackay was established. And then Monte Cristo was the book not, uh, uh, is it not done by, uh, you know, Mr. Dumas, you know, and, and you say, mm. that done, oh, that was done in 1844 as well. So all this history was part of it. And then <clears throat> I started um, producing the whiskies. And we got involved with the Americans on many instances. And, of course, there was a big uh, demand for the whiskies, a particular way back in the 90s, the 90s when people were looking to, you know, there was more quantity than quality that was going on. And, of course, uh, we first looked at uh, late in 1999 producing Dalmore with a cigar malt. And yeah. from there, we started really looking at what cigars would actually you know, be part of that. So every uh, expression of the Dalmore, we introduced the Dalmore uh, cigar malt, uh, 1999, uh, the Grand Reserva in 2007. And then, of course, uh, around about uh, 2011, we changed it once again, but with the tobacco. So Partagas, Partagas in particular, 1845, established Partagas, but also Hoye de Monterey Epicure Number no. 2. But another great cigar that I really do love is the Cahiba Bahiki uh, 56. Mm. He produced the Patterson Collection that was uh, 12 bottles that was sold just short of £1 million. I remember a day that we went uh, with Jimmy McGee. Dear Jim. Honest, great guy. And uh, we actually sat down that particular day with all the cigars that would be a perfect accompaniment with that Dalmore Patterson collection. Oh. When it came to the Trinidads and it came to oh, the Monte Cristos, etc. But I always remember when it came to the Cahiba Bahiki and we started smoking it, I just remember and I looked around the other guys, we went, wow. You know, the tobacco was just so perfect to go with that very rare whiskey. There were really? all whiskeys, but it was just the perfect accompaniment uh, to go each one. And it really brought home, and that's what the key thing is, time. You, you must give whiskey time, but you must give cigars time. There is nothing worse than I go around the world and somebody says, have a cigar, and I pick up a cigar and say, what about this whiskey? What about that? I'm smoking my cigar. No, no, you've got to talk to me. Talk to me. And I end up, it goes out, 
And then I end up not enjoying it. Whereas the enjoyment I get now, even from the lockdown, I've taken many cigars out to the garden. Yeah. My Dalmora. And I've given it the 45, even an hour on some occasions with some of these cigars. And it really is a time when you smoke the cigar and drink the whiskey and you drift into saying, is this not what it's all about? You're giving life time and you're looking at life and in appreciation. Uh, so, yeah, cigars are wonderful, but like everything, you must give them time. Yeah, very good point. And I totally agree with you. The lockdown, speaking to the retailers and manufacturers around the world, obviously they've had issues and there's some of them are worse than others, but online specialists and stuff have reported sales going through the roof because people are at home, they're worried. Um, you know, they don't know whether their jobs are secure. They don't know if their families are safe. And, yeah. you know, and next thing you know, what they're going to do, they sit and have a cigar and guess what? They feel better. They um, do. And, yeah. I've, you know, I don't think I could, I've ever had a cigar and felt worse at the end of it than I did at the beginning. Yeah. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful stress-reducing thing um, that I don't think people, you know, realise, apart from those of us who love it. Are you still on the P2s? Yeah, yeah, I, I like them as well. But, you know, it's, it's this, one of the saddest things for me is there are only a few still to this day in London and Glasgow and around the world. There are still now, you, you can't smoke this, you can't smoke there. Mm. There are still not a number of places that you can go after dinner no. and smoke a cigar. One of the best times of smoking cigar was in Jerez de la Frontera when I go down to the bodegas at, uh, you know, uh, Gonzalez Baez and uh, Fundador, of course, uh, Harvey's, etc. And we used to go to this restaurant. We used to talk about the business, but we never left the table. When it came to getting out the Lepanto brandies and the Dalmores, and then they said, well, do you like a cigar? And we sat and business and I remember saying you know this is one of the best times because we had to give it time these lunches would start at two o'clock and at 7 30 we were still there I said wait a minute dinner what about dinner or oh, dinner's going to be much later Richard we're still on lunch and I went but look at the time and we would just take our time but that cigar smoking in the uh, premises it was sort of outside the weather was wonderful and I remember the guy, the owner saying, oh, well, I'm not going to, you know, the smoking. I says, what about the smoking ban? No, no, that wouldn't affect me. But it did. And I think the poor man was eventually fined because he just wanted to maintain that relationship with his customers where they could come, eat his wonderful food, smoke his uh, cigars, and, of course, drink the brandies and the Dalmores and everything else. Yeah, no, there's nothing, nothing like having a lovely meal with friends and not having to disappear or you know wish you had a cigar to be able to sit there and continue there's a there's a great great sense of companionship that goes along with that um, yes. have you been to cuba richard yeah i've been to cuba I, but like i say i've been to cuba but i've never been to the cuba that i wanted to go to right what I, what I mean by that yes uh when you go to havana and everything else um you can pick up that. That's why I get involved with the history and the cars, etc. But I'd like to have stayed. I'd like to have, you know, perhaps 
put my foot in the soil when I go to Arboretha soil in, uh, in Horeta La Frontera. I like to put my shoes and my hands in the soil and smell it and see see the leaves, even picking up the leaves, smelling it. I, I just, I'm on the periphery. I've never given it the true time. It's always been business and, you know, in, out, in, out, all, all the time. So it's, uh, it's, it's back to the same word again. I, I haven't given it the time that it richly deserves, but at least having been there, you can sense the people and the care and attention. There's a film that Habanas produced many years ago, and you see these old ladies um, caressing the, the tobacco leaves. They're not just picking them up. They're carrying them like babies to the tables to sort out. And you can see that sort of love and affection this tobacco leaf is going to go into cigar. And, and they, they just caress it. They love it. But it's the, it's the pride that these guys have, and the ladies, of course. And, you know, all the stories that come from it, it's, it's just amazing. But I don't, I don't think a lot of people realize the, the care and attention and the demand. And, and getting the quality right is, is not easy. It's a lot of hard work. Yeah, very much so. Um... No, you're absolutely right. Well, there's a mission. I think I, I'm going to bend Jimmy McGee's ear and see <laughs> if we can't get me and Richard Patterson and Jimmy McGee out to Havana, and I think we could do some damage between us. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm, not, not, I'm absolutely sure of it. <laughs> you know, it's the same, you know, when you're saying that, Nick, it says quite often uh, uh, people will come to Dalmore Distillery and they said, did, did you taste Dalmore? And they said, yeah, we did. I said, no, no, no. Did you really taste Dalmore? They said, what do you mean? I said, I want you to drink the whiskey uh, at the distillery in, in the Samp room there. We've got lovely new suites that are up there. And, uh, you know, sip it, okay? But then we're going to pour you some water. Water? I thought you don't take water. No, I want you to take some of the drops of water that we use to actually reduce the distillation down to, you know, the maturation strength of 63% or 65%. And you'll see the difference when we take a, a bottle, you know, 40% or 45% or even slightly stronger and use the water at the distillery. Just that magical water from the actual distillery where it was distilled, you can see a sort of slight difference. And that's why people say when you smoke a cigar in Cuba, it's just a little bit better than smoking it elsewhere. Yeah, no doubt about it. You're right. Time and a place. Well, I know you've got a busy day ahead of you. So one last question, Richard. Um, if you had one distillery you could go to before you left this mortal coil, which would it be and why? Oh, that, Nick, that is so difficult. <laughs> what, I would, what I would say is that... Uh, you know, Dalmore has, has always been very much part since, uh, you know, it was established in, you know, 1839. Lots of things have gone on. I've given a lot of attention and devotion to all of them. I love, to be honest, I love them all. Uh, but, you know, because I've produced so many wonderful memories from Dalmore, I, I think that Dalmore Distillery, especially the King Alexander Dalmore, would be one that would be always very much in my main. Good answer for many reasons. Richard, thank you so much for being part of the pod this morning. It's been a pleasure 
to talk to you as it always is. Um, I've popped a book in the post to you, so let me know when you get that. And I look okay. forward to seeing you down the road somewhere for a for a good dram and a smoke, my friend. Okay, you take care now. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Well, you've been around the world in 80 cigars with me, Nick Hammond, and the inimitable Richard Patterson. What a great guy. <laughs> um, and when he came off there and um, I stopped the recording for a moment, Richard said, Nick, that was a really long interview. You know, I don't normally do interviews that long. Is that all right? And I said, Richard, felt like five minutes and we could probably sit there for the whole day and talk. Um, just amazing real character he's got he's got this uncanny ability his, his knowledge of history and his dates i mean you heard him there talking about dates and times literally days of the week when i went to see him first time i met him i remember him telling me the battle of culloden took place on a well he'll tell tell us next time whether it is a wednesday at four thirty or something and i thought well, that's unusual um so he has a real penchant for those details very meticulous man and that's why he blends the most extraordinary whiskies um, and tells a great great story i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did love a drop of whiskey of course i need to tell you about the book around the world in 80 cigars the travels of an epicure if you haven't read it what have you been doing all this time <laughs> it's available from all good bookshops and uh, cigar merchants who can order it for you. If you would like me to send you a signed copy, then I would be very glad to do that. Also, drop me an email, nick at nick-hammond.com, N-I-C-K at nick-hammond, H-A-M-M-O-N-D.com. Let me know your details, and I'll be very glad to send you one. I hope everybody is in fine form. I hope you're all keeping well. Remember to look after each other. Stay safe. Until next time. Bye-bye.